The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. But we're going to talk today, we're going to discuss murder and the death penalty. Um, we're, it's going to be something that's very different for people because uh, everyone has an idea of what something, when, when the death penalty should or should not be applied. But God's law, God's word, actually addresses when it should or should not be applied. And so the death penalty is something that <clears throat> is highly debated in our country, um, and you're going to find that even here as we give examples of, and why. So today, as we discuss murder and the death penalty, let's remind you, it says what in Exodus 20:13, "You shall not murder." And I'm going to give you kind of an introduction to this message, and then we're going to go through those points. On two of these points, the last two points, there's going to be things for you to write down as you want. I'm going to read through it. It's really the application of where those things are, so you'll understand what the death penalty applies to and how the death penalty is applied, okay? So um, it's it's a little bit different than what people are, you know, they're used to hearing, but they have an idea, so let's do this. Rushdie wrote, a man will act on his faith, and if his faith be humanistic, inevitably his basic standard will be man, not God's law. He will view the world not as God's handiwork, but as his own. A theologian of the death of God's school, believe it or not, William Hamilton has called attention to the fact that man now rarely looks at the starry sky with a sense of reverence for God. Instead, he cites his experience with, with his son as illustrative of a new attitude. The other night I was out in the backyard with one of my children who had to identify some constellations for his science homework. My son is a full citizen of the modern world and said to me, after he had located the required constellations, which ones are the ones, which are the ones we put up there, Dad? He had become a technological man, and this means something religiously. The boy's reaction was clearly logical. If the God of Scripture does not exist, then man is his own God and the world's Lord and Maker. So he, he's been taught how to think a certain way, and devoid of God. And in doing so, well, which ones did we put up there? Rustini says... In order to give man the preeminence, the humanist logically must destroy any concept of justice as a real and objective standard. Man must be above the law and therefore above justice. Justice is therefore reduced to rationalization and organized hatred. Howard Jones said in a changing crime in a changing society, but could all this instead perhaps be some kind of historical confidence trick? It has already been suggested that our idea of justice may be a rationalization of what is at the bottom punitive behavior. This would not be to argue that the idea of justice is fake, but rather that instead of taking it at face value, we might try to understand what needs it is intended intended to satisfy. It may appear then as a kind of collective psychological defense. As proof of the validity of our ideals, we are often inclined to refer the sense of conviction that we we and other people possess about them. Most of us certainly have strong conviction about the rightness of the ideal of justice, 
But all that sense of conviction does is, is to prove its appropriateness for us, that in the present state of our emotional economy, such a belief has for us a very special and much-needed part to play. But just as seen in this light is not merely the solvent of unrest within us, it is the positive outlet through which these tensions can be discharged in, as it seems to us, a constructive fashion. Through the idea of justice and bad things within us, are transformed into something new and worthwhile. All this so long as we don't have to look too closely at the outcome. For to stand the famous phrase upon its head and thus perhaps give it more validity, justice may more often manifestly appear to be done than to be done in fact. What is he saying? It's not important whether justice is actually done as long as it appears to be done. As long as you feel like you have done justice in that situation, it, it doesn't even mean it matter if the victim feels that they've received justice. It's, it's though the appearance. Justice William O. Douglas wrote in Civil Liberties, The Crucial Issue, Law once had a divine sanction and rested on God's will. Now, however, the sovereignty of God has been replaced by the sovereignty of the individual. In terms of this, for Douglas, the civil liberty struggle is of necessity hostile to the old order. Indeed, law and order is the guiding star of the totalitarians, not of free men. Law and order is being used not in order to give freedom, but it's to restrict men. Now, that might sound bad, but... Ultimately, God has always charged us with one responsibility. You have to have self-discipline. Self-governance is the most important thing. I mean, that is from the Garden of Eden. Self-governance. Because of sin and the fall of man, we have what we have today, but still self-governance is there. Man is not autonomous from others, but he is responsible for himself. That's so why Rushdie went on to say clearly a religious war is a process between humanism and Christianity. And that war, church, state, and school are almost wholly on the side of humanism against Christianity. That sounds odd, but listen. But the history has never been determined by majorities, but rather always and only by God. The struggle is between God's absolute justice and his law order and man's lawless self-assertion and autonomy. God's law order requires the death penalty for capital offenses against that realm. Man's law claims to value life too highly to take it. But humanistic societies do exact death for those whom they deem to be their enemies. Hypocrites. Double-minded. The death penalty appears at the onset of God's covenant with Noah. And surely your blood of your lives I will I require at the hand of every beast I will require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he him. Genesis 9, 5-6. Not only every murderer, but every animal which kills a man must pay it with its life. God requires this of a country and brings judgment finally for, finally for non-compliance. As Rand noted, contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not hold life cheaply. It is a serious thing to take life. And for the taking of life, the murderer forfeits his life. For this reason, there can be no ransoming or pardoning of, a, of murder as distinguished from accidental killing, nor a ransom taken, for to do so is to defile the land where God dwells in the midst of his people. Numbers 35, 29 through 34. 
See, Rand says in the Digest of the Divine Law, in terms of biblical law, the required modes of punishment were as follows. The death penalty for capital offenses, whipping from 1 to 40 stripes for minor offenses, in cases of stealing and destruction of another man's property, restitution, to which must be added from 100 to 400% as punishment. If y'all don't know what that is, if I stole $100 from you, I'm required to not only give you $100 back, but I have to give you $200. If I, t- if I were to steal um, an animal, according to this, if I stole an ox from you, and while it was in my care, it di- it was killed or it was something happened to it, I don't return one ox for one ox. I actually have to return four ox for the one. What it means is, if so what does that tell you? That if I steal from you, that's $100, I'm supposed to give back another 100 so you're supposed to get 200 back. If I steal your car and it's worth $20,000, and while, it's in, while I've stolen it, I destroy it where it cannot be returned, instead of returning you $20,000 or $40,000, rather it would be $80,000 that is restitution. Does that make sense? Okay. Can you see how little things could be applied, but we're like, oh, wait a second. Shouldn't be taking advantage of the of the per, of, you're making them a victim. You know, no, the victim was taken advantage of. This God's God's law has is applicable today. Those who are financially unable to make restitution or pay the fine were compelled to contribute their work and labor until the debt had fully been paid. That means they are an indentured servant until the debt is paid for the year. Or the seventh year happens, okay? So in the seventh year, they've set free. They're no longer ha- they no longer owe a debt. Confinement in a city of refuge for accidental killing. So if I accidentally killed someone, it was not my intention. What we call it involuntary manslaughter. What was it? What happens is because if you saw me every day in the supermarket or every day in town and you know that I killed your child, whether it was on purpose or an accident or wherever you think, it constantly causes anger and all bitterness to rise up. And it's very hard to forgive that person. So what it allows for is they were allowed to flee to another city for refuge. And that's how the restitution was paid. See, there's two types of capital punishment. We're in the main message now. I want to kind of lay a foundation. There are two types of capital punishment. God directly executes judgment and death upon men and nations for certain offenses. God does it. He does this at His time and His will, and none can tell Him no. God executes His judgment upon individuals in His timing and in His will, and there's nothing they can say about it. Secondly, the B part, God delegates to man the duty of inflicting death for certain offenses, and that without undue delay and without hesitation. This is the part where we want to run away. People don't want this responsibility. They want to do else, and we'll find out that here in just a moment. First, there is no financial restitution for murder. There's no restitution for murder. Well, there is restitution, but there's no financial one. Numbers 35, 30 through 31 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And it doesn't just stay there. It's not just men, but also in animals. Exodus 21, 28-30, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox... 
has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. Now, here's the only place. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So, the only time a ransom is if an animal does it and the owner knows. So, you have a dog that you know is violent and has been reported to do violent things and the neighborhood knows that your dog does those things and it gets out and it does a violent thing. Guess what? You are responsible. You're completely responsible. You say, well, that's a dog. It's not my fault. I didn't make the dog that way. I've loved the dog and I've cared. It doesn't matter. If you know it has a tendency to go after other animals or it has a tendency to go after other people, you must do something. You don't have a choice or you will pay with your life or a great amount of ransom. That is not set by you. See, because the ox is the primary murderer, there is a possibility of escape for the owner. Because the ox did murder. That's what I'm saying. No matter what, the animal's gone. Okay? Second, biblical law holds animals, this is what we're talking about, as well as men liable for murder. That's what we're getting at. We live in a, in a, in a time, we have to be careful. We have animals that are pets, and we have animals that are not pets. And even those ones closest to us, it applies the same. That's why when we talked about this, as, as it says in Genesis 9-5, for, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. No matter what, there, there must be something settled that we are liable, both animal and mankind are responsible and liable for murder. That's why we, when we went into this, I'll read it again, but a little further in Exodus 21, 29 through 32, and then 35 and 36, it says, But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also should be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give the redemption of his life, whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give the, to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast they also shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. So once again, the person who, the victim, benefits in all circumstances. When two oxes butt heads, they're both equally responsible. Okay? Let's say there's an argument breaks out and there's even two men. They both are responsible. One could have walked away and they chose not to. The others, and they don't. They're equally responsible for the damage that's caused. It's, it's in our law today and it comes from biblical law. The principle of animal liability and the liability of owners is still part of our law. That's what I want to get to. Thirdly, the principle is life for life with reference only to the act, not the criminal or their mentality. Have you ever heard of someone saying they're not guilty by reason of insanity? We're going to learn where that comes from and why it's anti-biblical. 
I'm going to teach you where it came from, because it came from, and and Rushdie wrote on this, and that's why I want y'all here, because that can't be an excuse. There's still consequences for action. It says, if death is the penalty for animals on the principle for of life for life, then this certainly is certainly true for men. Thus, on this principle, biblical law has no plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Neither is there, is there any privileged status before the law for a minor. You understand what we're talking about? That when someone intentionally murders, the first thing we hear today is, well, they didn't know any different. They, they, didn't, they don't have that self-control. But the problem with that is, it's still murder. If someone goes and finds a gun in their dad's house and, they get in, the, in their dad's drawer and they accidentally goes off and they kill their friend, that's an accidental, that was not intentional murder. That's, that is manslaughter, but it's not. Science is voluntary. There's a difference. Neither is any privilege uh, for the minor. Murder requires the death penalty whether, whether the offender is an animal, an insane man, quote-unquote, a child, or a feeble-minded person. The modern plea of not guilty by reason of insanity arose in 1843 in the trial of Daniel McNaughton for the murder of Edward Drummond, secretary to Sir Robert Peel. As a result of McNaughton's trial, the McNaughton rules were developed. It was A, presumed that every man is sane until the contrary is proved, but B, a man who is insane or laboring under a defect of reason while committing the act so that he did not realize the nature of the act or its wrongness was not guilty by reason of insanity. McNaughton was committed to an asylum instead of being executed. The McNaughton rules led to the decision in 1954 by David T. Bazelon of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia that no one could be held criminally responsible if his unlawful act was the product of mental disease or mental defect. This was the Durham case, the trial of Monty Durham, a housebreaker and check check passer who had been in and out of jails and mental hospitals for seven of his 24 years. Such pleas as McNaughton and Derman rules permit the courts to set aside the life-for-life principle, the principle of justice and justice itself in favor of a humanistic concern for the life of the criminal. Supposedly, prisons are punitive and heartless as compared to mental treatment. Now, the mental health approach is supposedly even more humane when in actuality, as Solomon long ago noted, that here as elsewhere, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Rushdeny spoke about a psychologist called Carl Menninger. He said, we are told this by psychiatrists like Menninger that society can be made healthy only by replacing the punitive attitude with a therapeutic attitude. To demand punishment of criminals is to reveal our own mental sickness, Menninger says. He speaks of it as fact as the crime of punishment. So that in his eyes, the good people of society are all criminals when they demand punishment. Menager holds that the crime of society against the criminal is greater than that of the criminal against society. Saying, I suspect that all crimes committed by all the jailed criminals do not equal in total social damage that of the crimes committed against them. Of the criminal, Menager says, we need criminals to identify ourselves with, to envy secretly, and to punish stoutly. They do for us the forbidden, illegal things we wish to do, and like scapegoats of old, they bear the burdens of our displaced guilt and punishment, the iniquities of us all. As a humanist, Menager regards man's life as the greatest good and injury to life as the greatest evil. The great sin by which we are all tempted is the wish to hurt others, and this sin must be avoided if we are to live and let live. 
this is the ultimate where when we talk about humanism when we talk about self-rule and self not self-governing but self uh, rule in in our own thinking in our own ways each man ha- is autonomous unto himself and his ways of doing things there is no law but his own law this is what happens what he says is well the law the law keepers the people who are keepers of the law who are who are who live righteously even uh, let's say this even the non-believer who follows the law to the point and in and, and, and all things, they're lawless when they, when they demand the life of a criminal. It's a problem. That means that every rape victim, according to this man, really deserved it. Because ultimately, when this man rapes a woman, it's what they secretly wanted to do in the first place themselves. That's what he's saying. How sin, How sick. And he says, for, for you want to, to see justice, godly justice done, is a form of mental illness. It's a crime against the criminal. This is the way thinking goes when we leave God out of it. When we separate any God and His Word from any aspect of life. This is what happens. Myrna Oliver, in, the, in her book, Insanity Plea, wrote, The court handles all cases involving mental illness, including court commitments of persons to mental hospitals, civil and criminal narcotics cases, and determinations for the municipal courts on questions of criminal insanity. So it's, it's now that the, 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 those who are responsible for enforcing the law are the only ones who can, say, give permission of whether someone lives or not, whether they go to a place for the criminally insane or not, it's no longer even the qualified. We've taken it out of the hands of, of the, and the discernment of men and women of God specifically. And we've given an idea that these things can go on because it's better. Because you know, because I, I have friends who say that, that the reason why they do, they do ministry in prison, and I have no problem with prison ministry, but the reality is, the reason why they do it is because they're like, listen, if, maybe we save some. Maybe when they re, if they get a chance to return to society, they'll be better. Maybe. But here's the thing. It's what the, the crimes of the people that they're dealing with, we're not talking about theft, which is restitution. They could have just gone that, paid it back. We're talking about murder, child molestation. And their goal is to teach these people the Word of God, which I have no problem. But here's the thing. Every one of these, we know, they have been, they're manipulators of sin. And now you've given an avenue that they can once go back out into society and use their sin to manipulate even more. They don't, they've never been held accountable. They just, they just got to take a vacation in, in, a, in, a, in, in maximum security. They've been fed, didn't have to work for the meals. The problem. Captain Taylor wrote in the death penalty, he said, The move to abolish the death penalty substitutes medicine for morals, and it denies the legal doctrine of individual responsibility, one of the fundamental goals, fundamentals of godly law. That's what it does. It seeks to take away responsibility. Rushdie went on to say, The pagan savagery is opened by the psychiatric approach. Instead of individual responsibility, guilt, and punishment, Group responsibility, guilt, and punishment is stressed. The society at large and the family get the blame, not the criminal. The time is drawing closer when it will be dangerous to be innocent of crime because innocence will constitute the greatest guilt. Fourthly, the death penalty 
is required by Scripture for a number of offenses. It's required. There's a total of 18 things, but I want you to see them. And it doesn't matter what we think of these things. I want you all to understand this. It's not our opinions of these things. Whether it be murder, striking or cursing a parent, that has to do with honoring your father and mother. When we started that, that commandment, that was one of the things we talked about. It was a... It was actually, they're, they're not only image bearers of God, but they are also, they're examples of God and His, His love and His discipline. And, and when we strike at them and their responsibility, we're actually striking at as if we're striking at God and cursing God. But you have adultery, kidna- kidnapping, by the way. Kidnapping, that means kidnapping and enslavement. So if we had, my answer always to what happened in the South, all the things God used it for good, and many of them were set free and out of bondage, believe it or not. And some are in better situations. Ultimately, the kidnappers would have been put to death. We're not going to go into that too much, but let me say this. So kidnapping, adultery, incest, uh, bestiality, sodomy, homosexuality, unchastity, rape or, of a, rape of a betrothed virgin, witchcraft, offering human sacrifice, incorrigible delinquency or habitual criminality, blasphemy, Sabbath desecration, propagation of false doctrines, sacrificing to false gods, refusing to abide by the court decision, and thus denying the law. So if you're supposed to pay restitution and you refuse and you run away even from those things, guess I mean look at the scriptures and you'll see. Failing to restore the pledge of bailment because such an act destroyed the possibility of community trust and association. So instead of you're, you no longer have paid your debt to society, you never have. So your community is at ar- up in arms because why? They don't know if they can trust whether you're going to commit this crime again or not. Fifthly, the methods of capital punishment. Now this is, well, this is this is civil rights issues here. They're put to death by burning, stoning, hanging, or the sword. The sword use of the sword is an exceptional circumstance. I'll tell you. They, it was not a joy to be put to death. It was not merciless. It was not merciful. Interesting. But the basic case was a death penalty itself rather than the form of penalty. Ultimately, it was the fact was on certain things, the death penalty was to occur regardless. That was the point. It wasn't which one of these are we going to use as much. It was not about finding joy and putting someone to death. Gervas Carey said in Thou Shalt Not Kill wrote... Capital punishment was never to be inflicted on the testimony of less than two witnesses. You remember all those offenses I just listed a moment ago? Two witnesses. In specified instances, capital punishment was to be executed by the witnesses themselves. So, if I'm saying, if Zach and I say, we saw this happen, the reason why the execution was started by us, especially stoning, was what? If we were bearing false witness... We are now guilty of murder. And, it, and, and others followed along because of our statement. So, so perjury, which would cause these, I guarantee if you knew that perjury was found out and you're put to death, you're, you're going to change this. You're going to use um, different circumstances. Executed by witnesses themselves, as in Deuteronomy 13, 10, and 17, 7. In some instances, execution was by the congregation. That did not mean the church, it means the group, the people, the community. Or by nearest of kin, the avenger of blood. So sometimes it was your next of kin. It was someone close to you. It was someone not in your family, but it was not your parents, but it was someone a relative. 
These are things that have to be done for a purpose. To, restart, uh, to put in and to establish God's law in all areas. Rushdie went on, and I'm going to finish up with this. It's a little, not a long quote, but it says, For when the religious and moral character of a people disintegrate, the lawbreakers begin to outnumber the police and the law keepers. Biblical law eliminates the incorrigible and habitual criminals. Biblical faith gives to the people a godly character and a law-abiding disposition. The breakdown of humanistic law orders is due to the radical criminal disposition of its lawless peoples. The law breaks down when the faith behind the law is gone. The hostility to the death penalty is humanism's hostility to God's law. But God's government prevails, and his alternatives are clear-cut. Either men and nations obey his laws, or God invokes the death penalty against them. This is something we need to heed in our country right now. No matter what our thoughts are, no matter what political... uh, what, no matter what political party one's attached to, no matter what we've thought about, everything, every decision we make and how we support it needs to be backed by whether or not are we as individuals, are, is it, are we evaluated against God's law, His Word. And we have to sometimes stand against our families and say, listen, I'm sorry guys, I love y'all. I love you. But I love you enough to tell you that I can't support this. Or I don't agree with you and I support these, the low, the meek, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners in our land. The fact is still true that virtually all indicted men are guilty, and they, in most cases, plead guilty. To avoid enforcing the law or to break down the law because of such cases of injustice is to compound the injustice. The enforcement of civil and criminal law is in the hands of sinful and fallible men. It cannot be made infallible. To improve the quality of law enforcement and to bring about greater obedience, it is necessary that we have more godly men. There is no answer but but only further decay in any weakening of the law. To use cases of injustice to destroy the law is itself a very great and deadly act of injustice. So, by making a law, making of law does not make change a society. Um... We coming up in February. They'll be bringing uh, the uh, abolition of abortion bill in front of the state of Texas. I'm for it. I'll always be for it. I believe it's so. What we what makes it, the abolition? And it calls it murder. Okay, it's a very strong statement. Even if the bill passes, it doesn't change the murderous acts of men's hearts. What we need. Not only the bill, I'm not opposing it. I'm saying we must push this bill. And then we have a responsibility as his church to proclaim truth into all the darkness that's there. That means we as Christians must be ready to step up and adopt these children. Because that's the thing. You know, know, we don't have a good record right now. Because we have somewhere between thirteen to 15,000 children in foster care in the state of Texas right now. Just between, just between Dallas and Houston. We are not on a good... We're not setting the standard already. So we better be ready to pick up a lot of children. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be. I believe we should be ready. God should be is preparing our homes and our hearts and our... I mean preparing Christians. Prepare now to do those things. Because that's the truth. Because if it's going to be considered murder, 
then we and we're for life, then we better be ready to provide life and living. And I don't think it should be through taxation. I believe we should be ready to do it in our homes. If you watch the same situation, we have the, the left in our country who's saying we need to let all the all these immigrants and all these people come into our country. And I'm not saying I'm against that, but the very soon as they're asked, will you allow them to come stay in your home? Oh, I'm, I don't, I'm not in that kind of situation. Well, listen, when you're standing for righteousness, you, what you think is a righteous act, you better be ready to pay for it. Because it's not just about loving in words, but our love is supposed to be accompanied by action. Our faith is always accompanied by action, or otherwise it's a dead faith. And that's why I keep speaking into these areas. Because every time, every time we, 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 we make these stands, you see people do it, they boycott this and they boycott that and they stand for this, and nothing changes. Why? Because the heart of man never changes. It's a victory. And then you got another president, or you get another judge, or you get someone else, comes along, and it changes again. Why? Just because something's legal, or just because something's illegal, doesn't change mankind and the heart of man. The only thing that has the power to do so is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when someone asks you, what do you think should happen to so-and-so because they, they did this act? What do you think they should happen? Sometimes you say, well, it's not what you have to get to this place where you say, well, it's really not my will. It's not really my opinion. I know what God's word says. And I know it's going to be hard. It'd be painful. But this is what he says. And I have to stand behind him and his word. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.